0: Okay, hey, if you can open your Bibles to Titus, Book of Titus, Titus chapter three, and I should, well, getting to the end of going through Titus. Um, it's been interesting diving into the book. Um, didn't spend as much time on this one, but that's fine. Uh, I was able to thankfully get some study in it, but it's. Titus is an amazing book. It's very short, but a lot of different. The main things we talked about is uh, the main theme is just the right doctrine produces right practice, right teaching. But that's really a lot of Paul's writings, or he starts off with a lot of teaching and what the truth of scripture or what the truth of salvation and how to fix your life. And then he gets in the practical. And that's kind of what we'll look at is that really that just doctrine, how that affects in this specific area in Titus 3. Um. But why don't we get right into Titus 3, and without further ado, so Titus 3, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures. "'living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. "'But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, "'not by works of righteousness which we have done, "'but according to his mercy he saved us, "'by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, "'which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, "'that being justified by his grace, "'we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. "'This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly.' that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is an heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. To say the one part thing about now studying the Bible in depth is like, which theme with Paul do you go with? If you've studied Paul, it seems like in one passage, you're like that's the theme. No, that's the theme. And there could be several themes, but um, throughout this, so we see. Why don't we pray? Then we'll get into it. Actually, let's pray. Um, Dear God, thank you for tonight, and thank you that um, you gave me the opportunity to preach. Uh, please uh, guide my words, guide my thoughts, help me to present the truth of your word um, in a uh, understandable way. But Lord, just please, uh, please help. The, the truth of your scripture to be just uh, shining forth in uh, the hearts and minds of the listeners here um and lord please uh put me out of the way just uh, speak speak uh, help me speak the truth Lord thank you for all that you've done in Jesus name amen so at the be so titus chapter three though and we have gone over like i said um throughout titus it has started out in titus chapter one he gives a what a bishop must be, a bishop must be blameless, and he gives the example of how the leaders in the church ought to be, and then he gives some, there's a lot of antithetical type people in the same book, some unruly talkers, so just people who are not what a leader in the church should be, and that reason was because you had the leaders need to be able to combat those who were unruly and vain talkers, who were deceiving, who were Uh, Subverting houses, they need to be able to combat combat those people, and so then he talks about the way to combat is with sound doctrine. The way to deal with wicked people who are trying to overthrow the church is to teach sound doctrine at the base level, starting with the children, and all the way up through the whole church, teaching the truth of Scripture, and that, and just in a practical, very practical way, and. Then he goes on, and in there, of course, throughout these little side things of where he goes off on a tangent. It's not a tangent, it does go into but it, but almost seems like it just exploding into about God, about um, salvation and what God did in salvation. And right at the end of chapter 15, he says, These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. So he says to be very Confident, very uh, strong, and the way he says it, let no man despise thee. Speak it with authority. Speak these truths with a scripture. and what he was talking about was um, right before that, with the grace of God, the bring of salvation, hath appeared to all men. And then it teaches us to deny ungodliness. It says, Look for the blessed hope. Um, now, blessed hope and the glorious appearing of, of the great God and our savior, Jesus Christ, and that his coming makes us, he purified us to make us a peculiar people and to be zealous of good works. And that idea of good works keeps coming up throughout the book over and over and over again. And he ends and says, these things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority and to let no man despise thee. But then in verse 1, he says, put them in mind to be subject to principalities, powers. So he starts off saying, put them in mind, which has the idea of remind them. And so throughout this passage, um, we see that the one in authority has been given an example of how to lead in this age. There's different examples throughout this, but one aspect is to lead very confidently, to lead that you know that it is the truth, but also understand and, re- as we'll as we'll go through, remind those be in a understanding, be understanding in the way that you disciple, and we'll get into that what that means because he goes into then and says. Because you guys were wicked heathens at one point, but Christ is the one that saved you. So don't get all high and don't get on your high horse. Be patient with these people, but put put them in mind. As uh, Matthew Henry said, ministers are the remembers of their people of their of their duties. So you could say of their people's duties. He said that is the job of the ministers. Matthew Henry said that, and that is the idea here: to continually put them in mind. And so, what kind of things does he tell them to put in mind? But that's, we'll get into that, but this is also important for the not pastor, but the parent, the father, the, um, if you are in some sort of discipleship or leadership position, which all of us in one sense are, being reminding those who you are teaching, reminding them of the truth of Scripture. We get to here, it's their duties. So put them in mind to do what? To be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. To speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. So these are things that are very practical. So it is a job of the spiritual leader to continually put before his people and their duties before God, to put before his people their duties before God in their personal, social and civil lives. We've kind of already gotten to personal and social, their personal lives in chapter two. He talks about the aged women, the young women, the young men, the older men. It gets a little bit more specific and servants in their with their masters. So in social lives, but also their civil, political lives, right? That's kind of what it's talking about. Principalities, powers, um, obey magistrates. All principalities have powers, is the power is also, it's the word. Uh, that also has the idea of authority. So he's supposed to be subject to put himself under these people. So the, the spiritual leader is to put people for their duties before God in their personal, social, and civil lives. Uh, parents also are to do the same thing, especially fathers, to put their children, their duties in this world and tell them the why behind it. So he tells them, though, here, we could get, um, he tells them to speak. Let me keep going. Sorry. But husbands, also husbands, to remind your wife of their duties before God. And that's what he does here. He says, Put them in mind, remind them of these things. And here, our pastor is commanded by God to remind us what our duties to God and his authorities are in this world. Here, we, here specifically, we are reminded to obey civil authorities thoroughly. It's kind of interesting that he mentions magistrates, principalities, powers three different times. Aspects of authorities in the government, and that includes the IRS the Congress, the president, the policeman who pulls you over and speeding, or uh, when we got when we went off the road recently, the policeman who warned us thankfully it's all, but um, we have to respect him even thankfully he was a nice guy, but sometimes policemen aren't nice, but <laughs> I know as we got a police officer in here I, I got to watch out but they just aren't always. They have bad days too, but they are still their authority. And according to God, we are we're obligated to respect them, to subject. So it's not that they subject us; we are supposed to subject ourselves to them, um, because God has given them our given them authority. Um, so don't now go to the extreme example and say, "Well, the law." I wonder if they tell us to go do. Uh, Okay, like Pastor is preaching with Ephesians, cut it out. Like, get over it. Most of the time, you're not going to have those situations. If, you, if it comes, you'll know. If you're supposed to go against the law, you'll know. Um, but most situations are not against your conscience and are not against God's word. So, but Christians here, he says, are not to be haphazard in government. We are prepared, he says, prepared to every good work, which reading different things, some of them will say that it's just good works in general, some are saying in context, it's good works in particular with governments and civil authorities. Well, I think you could, it says every good work. So you take it however you want it, but that would also include clearly that Christians can be involved in government. I remember there was a friend of mine in high school who decided he to get into politics. He might have been too young for it because... Honestly, high school, he doesn't know that much. But people were saying he was, this is an non-Christian thing to try to get into the town council. But, which just doesn't make any sense. Um, but it's clearly right here. It does not saying, it's, it's to be ready to every good work. So there should be an involvement. There is a way to, to um also in scripture we find out, there is a way to deal with the government. There is a way to come about things rightly. In history, to class to talk about Martin Luther and um, one verse that came up in there was not by might or by power, but by by spirit, say it, the Lord of hosts. That's how things get done. But that doesn't mean we have to sit back and do nothing. Um, but it also with that aspect of, there to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers. So this is still in that same aspect of sometimes whether it's with no man in general or the government. Sometimes it's very easy to start blaspheming them and. Um, in the- Christian way, Christians curse we don 't actually say any bad words, but we say some harsh things to people that are wrong and um, about our legal, about our government, about our legal system, even when there are times where we have to point out what they 're doing is wrong, but the way we speak about them is the thing it is to speak evil of no man. the idea is blasphemies. Um, and to, uh, profaning their name, profaning them. Um, so it is not just not speaking truth. Paul spoke truth at times. He had people that he wrote in his letters who were, I'm seeing in right here, Alexander the coppersmith, people like him. Different people throughout his times that did a, were a problem. He pointed them out. But it was not a profanity, a blasphemy of him, um, a false portrayal of them. Because we sometimes even portray our enemies who are wrong falsely. But Christians in our workplace or in our social life, um, among Christians, they should not also be not always looking for a fight. He says that here. They should be not brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. So a humility, a fairness, a courteousness. This is; these are all just very, as we could see, that we're getting into any gritty details. But God cares about just the day to day life. Joke about it in class sometimes. God cares about how you brush your teeth. He cares about every part of your life. And he has a plan for it. And that is including in the details in your home, but also in our, he has a plan. He's, some of this comes out, I'll say this, some of this comes out why it's believed maybe why he's bringing up principalities and powers is because in verse 13 of chapter two, if you look at, it says the great God and our savior, Jesus Christ. That is very likely a phrase that was used by, a phrase that was many times only used for emperors and kings. And to replace Jesus Christ's name in there is to say that Jesus Christ is the great God and Savior, which he is, but also that's saying that the Roman emperor is not. That's saying the king is not. So that gets the thing of, oh, does that mean I get to rebel? No, that is not what that means. You don't get to rebel, but there is a way to go about it. And that's what he's talking about, that there, you have to have the right understanding of these things, the right doctrine. and But he says, anyways, but he says those things, and then he goes to put them in mind, to remind them, to remind them of these things, to keep this before their mind, that this is how a Christian ought to act. And that is the job of a leader, of a job of a um, pastor, is to put before his people this is your duty in the world. This is what God expects of you before your government. This is what God expects of you in every little aspect of life. And where does he, but in that, he says, put them in mind, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers lusts and pleasures. Living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. So, when he says that, um, why does he say to put them in mind? We could say. So, he says, so the answer then is a question is saying, why do we put them in mind? Why do we remind them? Let's use language that we understand this But he could say, put it, in, we could also say, Continually putting it before them, putting it before their face, reminding them. Why do that? Because, verse 3, we were once just like them. Because we were their ones too. We were once, whether it's someone who is a young Christian or someone who has, we're speaking about young Christians, but we could still apply it to an unsaved, someone who's seeking to understand the things of Christ, maybe they're not saved yet, but they're trying to learn, be patient with them because you were once there. Don't think yourself any better. At one point, you had no understanding of the Bible, and you didn't know where Genesis was either. You didn't know where the book of John was either at one point, and sometimes we laugh someone doesn't know it, but that's not right because... It's only really that simple thing, but it's by God's grace that you even know that where the book of Genesis is, and you know the truth of Genesis. I mean, it sounds simple, but as a new Christian, you needed your hand held as well. You were so easily deceived in this passage, which we're not going to dive into it, but deceit, being deceived it is brought up in there. Being deceived is a real thing that happens to the world, but there's this side, nobody if you are deceived, God still holds you responsible. Deceit is not a saying, oh, I didn't know. You're still responsible. But we were that way at one point. We were deceived by Satan and his different traps and tricks. And at one point we also, he says, for we ourselves sometimes were foolish. As foolish is the idea of ignorance. We didn't know. We had without knowledge of the things of God. And at one point, we were also were disobedient, we were rebellious, we hated God, whether you want to say, "I've always loved God, that's a lie. The Bible says otherwise that you that without God you have no desire of him you we every man goes his own way, every man is against God, so let alone God what God told you to you did not care what anyone would say, you didn't want to listen to your teachers or your um those who are trying to disciple you. And even at this still it's the same point today, we still don't usually want to listen to um, Pastor or anybody else who comes to us and says the Bible says this, you need to change. No one wants to change. We all are prideful. But we were that way once before. We also were slaves. He says, serving divers lusts and pleasures. Serving is the idea of a slave. You were a slave to. Divers is many, so many different kinds of lusts and pleasures. Lust, of course, is desires. Passions. Pleasures is not saying they were, it's a neutral term, but it's not meaning they're bad, but clearly here indicating that they are, you're given over to those things. They had taken your life away, whether they were good or bad things. You are pursuing after, the word there is hedonism. That's the idea of there. That's where the the root word of it. So don't act prideful as if you were never once in their boat. There was a time when you could not control your eyes and lust. This is not a side note. This is not a pass for what they're doing. It's just a. He's saying, be patient with them. Put it before them. Continually put it before them because there was a time where you had to be told twenty times. My dad, my parents would. uh, Since my mom worked in a nursery growing up, she would. Worked with kids all the time, and so she would hear some parents. I told you once, which I'm sure I'm sure I'll probably say that, and then listen to this. Don't, but but they would say, "I told you once, didn't you know?" And my parents were like, "That's not the way. You have to just continually tell them," and that's the way with discipleship. It's continually. Sometimes you have to tell them, "I told you yesterday," and I told you already, um, like five minutes ago. And sometimes I get that in school already. It's, and someone asks, like, I just told you that five minutes ago. But we have to be patient. You probably had a problem. This is, fun, this is different. But it is true of food, alcohol, immorality. Not the food part I'm saying. That's it. Anyways, some of you may have had a problem with food. Um, that can be a problem. Most of, most of us here don't really have that problem. True gluttony. But um, we've had problems with, with alcohol, maybe immorality. Maybe a pleasure in something as take what you used to, when before you were saved, took your desires. You loved it with all your heart, and it distracted you from what was important. You once thought those passions would satisfy, but guess what? They think the same thing. They think at this point that they're satisfied. Now, we don't say, we don't be like the, the blind person. Let the blind person say, oh, or you just let him just believe what he believes and walk away. No, no, it's true. The world actually does look like there are beautiful mountains out there, even though you've never seen them. They're there. The colors are there. They're there. So we don't go on their side of it and say, oh, we're not trying to go to their side of the story. But we what we can understand. We can be patient. At one point, you spent your life in malicious wickedness, so malice and envy. You were happy at the downfall of your opponent. Your opponent fell, and you're hip, hip, hooray. You wanted him to be totally destroyed. And, then, and I, then when he won, when he beats you, you hated him. You hated his guts. You, were, you wanted him dead because of his victory, because of his well-doing. But we aren't, above, we aren't above these things. So there was a time when you lived, when you saw, because the idea of hateful is despicable. It says in verse 3, hateful and hating. So they were despicable and they were those who, they were hating others that were also despicable. Bunch of despicable people hating despicable people, basically. And you were living that way one time, where you were to what you would look at the world right now, and you drive by on, wall and see the people that are, despicable looking. Like it's they're the most extreme example of it, but you see them that they are just given over to their own lusts, given over to their own pleasures of. I mean, they're living on the street. They don't want to listen to anyone. And they look, being honest, they look despicable. You go, ugh, I wouldn't want that. But we were there once before. Whether we may have been physically there, there was a time without Christ, we were like that man on the side of the street. Helpless, hopeless, thinking that we would and our way was the way. And no one who has blood running through his veins is above having ever been a part of these things. Every Christian leader at one time was in the same boat. Every Christian leader, every Christian was here. As has been pointed out, well, this is specifically focused on pastoral leadership in a church, all of us are leaders and disciplers. All of us must remember where we all came from. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. If you think that you have attained this on your own, then think again and consider your ways and your thoughts. If you think you have got to where you're sitting here today because you made it, you have a, I I would warn you. Because 1 John 10 says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. If we think we got here all on our own, the Bible says, I warn you, you didn't. And so with that, we should be patient only Should we be patient with only because we were once there? Is it only the only reason we should be patient is because we we understand their plight? No, because the world does the same thing. They say, "Oh, you know the rich guy who managed to get him pull himself up by his bootstraps." He's like, "I understand. I was there once. You can do it, though, man. You can get. You can be like me and get do things all on your own. And you don't need. You might. They might say you don't need God to be your crutch." Just mend your own leg, cover up the bone cancer on the inside, and don't listen to the great physician. He doesn't know what he's talking about. You you can take care of your guilt all on your own. I did it. Look at me. And they understand their plight. So it's not just understanding their plight. There's something so much more important than understanding their plight. It is understanding where we came from, but also where we came from by Who brought us from there? So, what really is the reason they ought to live right and the reason we can live right? It's because, here it says, But after the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, he's saying, remind them. And remind them in a way to do these things. But also remember where you came from. Because, but also understand what changed you. It wasn't yourself. And that's what we have to understand with them. Is it's not us that's going to change the person who's trying to understand the truth of Scripture, trying to understand what God has for them. It's not their works. It's not our works. That doesn't mean we are get a pass and say we get to sit on the couch and watch, watch God do what He does. That's, right? God still has us be part of His work. That's not us. That's, but here the focus of this passage, it, the interesting thing is faith is never the view, faith is never used in this passage. That doesn't mean faith is not involved. It's just, salvation is all of God. It is God that changed you, and it is God that will change them. But after that, the kindness, it says, but after that. It's after the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward man appeared. The kindness and love. The word love comes from the word we get Philanthropy. Kindness also has the understanding of his goodness. So, God's kindness is goodness and his love for man, his philanthropy. Just like philanthropy, we know the bait word. Talk about a philanthropist. Someone who gives to people. Well, God is the ultimate philanthropist. and But, he, love of God, our Savior. So, Interestingly, um, our Savior is given to Jesus, this side note, Jesus and God. So Trinity mentioned in there, but the word appeared is also appeared is also in two thirteen. So this appearing is clear, is not referring to appearing to specifically in, in this passage. Of course, by application it definitely is. It's there, but it's not specifically. It's talking about the general Christ coming. Um, In verse 213, it says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So it's talking about um, Jesus Christ's appearing there. But the idea here is the love of God. So that philanthropy, that goodness, the kindness of God was shown in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ appeared. And that, what he's saying is that is what changed us. Jesus Christ. Nothing else. And he says it, then in verse 5, he says that not by works of righteousness, which we have done. It is Christ who saves. Righteousness has the idea of, it's something of just as well works of justice, or and it's interesting because that similar word a meaning is used with uh, later on talking about justified. But we try to justify ourselves with our own good works, and those don't save. Nothing we did would wash us, would save us, wash us, regenerate us, renew us, or justify us. Nothing we did would do, and nothing we do, no good works, no doesn't matter how good they are, will do any good when God looks at you. The Bible says your, your your righteousnesses are as filthy rags. He looks at them and he thinks, gross. You're trying to, please, you're trying to please a holy God with your own unholy works. But it's not anything we do. There's nothing we do that will save us. God, through his great mercy, he saved us. It's interesting. Someone pointed out the words he's great and abundant. And um, also the idea of shed is poured out. It has a picture of like shedding of blood. Sometimes it's used. But it's like, all of, just all of these different things. It's When God gives... He doesn't um, give like, I mean, I'll just admit sometimes I would tend to give. <laughs> I sometimes can be kind of stingy. <laughs> we uh, sometimes are all, if someone asks us for money, we're like, do you... trying to give every really reason. is this a good reason to give to them, which, of course, as human beings, we have, God even doesn't just give ran- he does he doesn't just give randomly in a sense. Um, but when God gives, it is abundant. It's overflowing. And but anyway, according to his mercy, he saved us. It was because God had pity. So the mercy is that we have pity or compassion on us in our sins. We're in our sins. We were, we didn't deserve it. And God had pity. He had compassion. He looked on us. And in that, also with all these different things, it's impl- implied in there, but God saved us for his own pleasure, for his own glory. Just Why did he save you? Because he said, I want to save him. He didn't have to. He had nothing obligated him to do so. He saved us because that was what would bring him glory, and because that's what he chose to do so. There is absolutely nothing that made him decide to save us from our foolish, rebellious, and lustful, and pleasure-filled life. A life of rebellion. So how did he save us? What is meant by washing? Um, Here, people say that washing is meaning baptism. Well, um, it's clearly, emphatically, absolutely no. That is not what that is talking about at all. Um, We can confidently say that. Um, The washing there... the phrase by the washing of regeneration should be understood as speaking of the washing done by regeneration. So elsewhere in the Bible it says washing of water by the word. Um, Washing is a word indicating a bathing place. So a place you take a bath. Or a place where a bath occurs. So this washing place is not the baptismal pool. This place is simply that of regeneration. So where does it happen? Where does the washing happen when God remakes us? When he recreates us, he doesn't just take the um, sponge. You know, I mean, I never had my parents do it, thankfully, but I had friends who said that they didn't clean up, and so their parents took steel wool or something to them. God doesn't take a bunch of steel wool and scrub us. He recreates us. He makes us something brand new. He says the Bible says he makes a, a, new, a creature, a new creature in Christ Jesus. When the Holy Ghost regenerates a sinner, that's exactly what he does. He makes him a new creature created in Christ Jesus. He cleans the sinner by how does he clean him? By regenerating him. He doesn't clean him by reformation. there's no He doesn't have to reform him. He makes him anew. And this renewing is done by, as we see here. Regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. So, that renewing is uh, at salvation. There's debate of whether it's renewing at salvation or renewing um, uh, after salvation continually. But we can, all, here it seems to be um, specifically renewing at, because this whole thing is talking about salvation. Renewing at salvation, but then after salvation, he continues to renew our mind, and there's things as such as that. But this is the main focus here is that God changes us. So that's going back to when we're discipling, we're understanding that. Remember, God changed you. This Holy Spirit is poured on us abundantly by Jesus Christ, our Savior. Nothing we do made this happen. Nothing we do brought it on to ourselves. It is Christ that saves. All of these were done for us. Why? Why did God send his son and show his great love for mankind in this way? What was the end goal in mind? We read, and this is exciting, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. When we are made righteous by God's own loving favor, so that's by his grace, it's just something that's given out of his favor on us just because he, he wanted to not... His favor is not something that was earned. But rather, but when we are made righteous by his loving favor rather than our own faulty attempts at righteousness, which are empty. What is the reason for all this? What is the reason he does this? It says, that and then there's this little phrase in there, being justified by his grace. We could say that we should be made heirs. That's why he does all of this, is that we should be made heirs. According to the hope of eternal life. We can be confident that we are possessors of the confidence that we have eternal life. So heirs is the idea of possessors. We all know what an heir is, but you, are pos- you possess that. You're an heir to your your parents' estate. When they die, they give it to you. And we know when we get to heaven that God has part of our, our inheritance is eternal life. But that in one sense, really, if we have the hope, if the confidence that we will have eternal life. And because of that, this kind of gets into it in other parts in the Bible, but because we have confidence that we have eternal life here, we have eternal life in the future, we in one sense have eternal life here. We can live in the Light of God's, God's, the life He's given to us, victory. We talked about that in other classes, but, anyways. Um, sorry that in, in school we talked about some of those things. In 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about all of those different things the resurrection, how that gives us victory. But we have heirs of the hope, of the confidence. We can be confident, we can possess. God did all of this so that we can possess the confidence of eternal life. And he didn't have to. He's God. He allowed us to become an heir. Elsewhere in scripture talks about we're joint heirs with Christ. None of this, the whole idea here is he didn't have to do any of this, and it was nothing we did. God changed us. what kind of freedom does this bring? In Second Corinthians, we read that there is no fear in. Actually, I... yeah, First Corinthians fifteen. There's no fear in death. And this is how how would this make your you live your life? If to live is Christ and to die is gain. I mean, you don't go jump in front of a train because this other part. That's I mean, God has to live as Christ. You have something in purpose in life, but if you die, it doesn't matter. So you can live your life all out for Christ. But we're kind of getting away from the main point here that this is all going towards, but it's so exciting. Um, In verse, so herein is what must be continually placed before the people. It is that God has given you eternal life. It is presenting, but really must be presenting who God is, what has God has done for you. That is the job of a of a minister, of someone who is a discipling, is to put before the people who God is and how that affects their life. Okay, so God did all these great things for you. He's so good to you. He is your king. How does that affect your life? What do you do about it? That is the job of the preacher of the gospel, the, someone who is getting up or who's just talking in their family. Who's leading their family? The job of is to show them who God is. But in verse 8, Paul calls this all a faithful saying. He says, This is a faithful saying. So it's a true statement. This is many times that means it's a creed, but that's we're we're not, not, we don't need to worry about that really. But he's saying that this is a this is a true statement. Here he commanded Titus to speak confidently on these things. And to insist on them. So he says, what I've just said, all about Christ. That he's done all these things for you. This, it's a faithful saying. It's true. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly. So continually insist. Because of these is true. Because what Christ has done for you, you can confidently insist that This is what a someone who is a leader in their family or a leader or a disciple or insist, you must do this. Whatever it is that God tells us to do, whatever application from the character of God, because God is holy, we must be holy. Because God gives, we must give. Because God is does good works for us, we must do good works. Because he says that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. That these things, understanding this faithful standing, understanding all these truths that you must maintain. Be careful to make a purpose. Work at it. Look and try to how can I do good works for others. Because these things, he says, are good and profitable unto men. It sounds we don't we don't have some mystery religion. We don't have some mystical, spooky religion. Or today I saw something with meditation and we don't have to go to some Simba some meditation and we don't have to meditate and to get our inner peace or whatever. We don't have to all of those different things. I mean, we, don't, we have a true religion. It's not some mystical thing. It is practical. It's not just for the inside of a temple. We go inside of a temple, we bow down, we light our little candles or incense candles, and then we walk out and live our life. He says, these things are good and profitable unto men. The death of Christ, the coming of Christ, the appearing of Christ is profitable to you. It's useful. It's useful knowledge. It's not something you stuff in your head. Um, Some people like to just learn facts. It's not just a fact for your fact book. It is practical. It is something useful. So teaching on the nature of God and salvation of God is useful. It is the major part of what a pastor should teach and preach. Because Christian theology... Biblical theology is practical (laughs) theology. And that's the whole idea of Titus. Good doctrine leads to good practice. Knowledge of God is practical. People will say, I don't want church and all that stuff. It's too boring. But Paul tells them that this is. God's word, the coming of Christ, is not something to leave as a church thing for, oh, wow, Jesus came, amen, close the book, we're done. No. It affects Every part of your life. And it affects how you deal with, he starts off, government. And it deals with us, and then quickly in the winding down, he kind of, then he says, But avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law for the iron profitable and vain. So there seems to be some issue of division going on as it is. And some seem to possibly be amazed by these other things as opposed to just elsewhere in scripture talks about don't be moved away from the simplicity that is in Christ. So there's people that are looking at these foolish questions, foolish idea of things, again, they don't know about. They don't even know what they're talking about and they're getting up and trying to dig into these, maybe the Bible means this here. Well, maybe it doesn't say. Um, And people start arguing and discussing and Rather than, that's not the focus. Get your mind away from focusing on all those little things that the Bible doesn't really even tell us about. Focus on your focus. And especially the main thing is ignorant, foolish. They don't even know what they're talking about, too. Focus on what the Bible does tell us. Don't focus on, I have a genealogy, or I'm a Jew, and so I have this long genealogy. It's connected to this guy, and this guy, and that guy. Who cares? That's pride. Contentions—they're contentions. They're strivings about the law. That's the idea. They're like little lawyers. You no, know, this little law and this there—that doesn't say there's not rules. We're not going away from that. The Bible. There's things where, where we should live according to. Live a life and be disciplined. But people are strivings about the law, and they're they're coming together. The big idea here is they're all arguing and divided, and because their way is the way that has to be right, and. And all of these different things, he says, things you guys are focused on, they're unprofitable. They're empty. Focus on Christ. Focus on what He has done for you. That's profitable. And then he goes, and a heretic, he's a heretic is someone who's divisive. He says, a man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. A heretic is someone who's divisive. And these divisive people, they're like poison. These people who think they're with their pride and they want to argue about these little nitty-gritty things that don't that are unprofitable in vain. They're empty. They are poison. It's like if you ever have earned business situation, you have that employer, employee who just anytime he's with any group, the group. Turns doesn't matter if it was good before it turns sour. That's those type of people. They're poison. They turn whatever group they're in. They make it sour. They destroy it. They're like a cancer. The Bible elsewhere talks about one person. He he's like eat like eats like a canker. <laughs> these people who were worried about all these little things, and he says reject, avoid, avoid is like literally go around them. When it says but avoid foolish questions, so he's there. Go that way. Make it. Don't go make a purposeful point to avoid these things because they're unprofitable. And reject him. It says reject him, avoid him, stay away from him, knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth being condemned of himself. So he's deceived, he's sinning, he's willfully sinning. And by his deceit, being deceived, by his willingly sinning, um, in that he will not receive your admission, so you're supposed to go to him twice says, first and second, go to him. Don't just let him his own way. No, understand he's deceived, so try to bring him back in. The goal is to bring him in the fold, but after a point, he doesn't want it. He's a cancer. Leave him alone. Knowing that he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned to himself. He's condemning himself. And that's a side note, too, where he's, he says subverted and sinneth. He's deceived, and he's purposely sinning. God does not say, Oh, he's subverted. He's deceived. Oh, that's all right. We'll let him get away with it. Being deceived is not an excuse for sin. Which is makes it even more weighty. But being deceived, God doesn't say, Oh, you were deceived. You're, it's okay. No. It's still God still holds us accountable. He will still hold the deceiver more. He'll give them more. Responsibility, more accountability. And so the that idea is elsewhere in scripture, but you're still responsible. But all of these things, boiling down to it, is the job of a leader, the job of a pastor, the job of someone who is a spiritual leader, who is discipling, is to set Christ before his people and show because of what Christ has done, what are our duties. And understand, be patient. Because Christ changed you. Christ will change them. You won't change them. But be patient, continually putting their duties in Christ before them. Continually reminding them, continually putting it before them, saying Christ has done this, so that means you need to do this. Christ has done this in your life, so you need to do this. You need to, whatever the situation God has given, you must give. God loves, you must love. God is holy, you you must be holy. God, Jesus Christ was obedient, you must obey. All these different things, and that is the duty